today we're traveling to Spain, or rather the Iberian Peninsula, and I'm joined by Alvaro Carvajal Castro, a historian at the University of Salamanca, who's a specialist in early medieval social and economic history, especially in northwestern Iberia. Welcome to the podcast, Alvaro. Thank you very much, Charles. So Avari, you've recently written an article about the, the commons, so um, shared resources in, in 10th, mostly in 10th and 11th century northwestern Liberia. Why is this an important topic of research? That's, that's a question that you have to answer at, at different levels. But on the one hand, in recent years, there's been interest about the study of early medieval local society. So the commons are one of those that we can use to approach local societies and understand their workings. We have to understand that we come from a historiography that with regards to, to northwestern Iberia, was built on the notion that there were peasant communities uh, who shared access to certain key resources, such as grazing land, woods, uh, water, but not much work had been done with regards to, to the actual details of, of what kind of resources these were, how they were, how access was granted, how the, the use of the commons was organized. So there's this scope there to, to go into further detail, to further detail how local societies worked. There's, there's a broader trend in, in the study of, of early medieval, well, in the micro, micro politics of early medieval societies. Um, so if, if we understand the commons as one of the arenas for this micro politics, um, they enable us to see the position of different social actors at the local level, the way in which relationships between them are established, the kind of, of elements that, that are part of the power relationship, the, the elements that inform the power relationships between them, social dynamics behind that. So I think in, in conceptual terms, it's a, it's a very powerful tool to approach early medieval local societies. And, um, and we're talking about we're talking about things like I mean these, these what are we talking about woods I guess woodlands um, meadows those sorts of yeah. agricultural resources is that I, I, yeah basically agricultural resources but also water water example, that's, yeah. that's also very prominent in the um in the in the Tartars, especially regards to the use of water for uh, feeding meals uh, these kind of, of of things okay so um, we think about these. These the, the, the farmers, I mean, most of the people obviously in all of Europe, but obviously the same is true in northwest Nigeria, are, are peasant farmers. They're living in family households. But actually, there is kind of collaboration and 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 shared use. Of, it, it's not just kind of nuclear families, basically living and minding their own business. They have got resources which they need to manage and use in, in common. Yeah, and, and that's something that I think it's very important to understand, not just the workings of these local societies, but actually the reproduction of local societies over time. Because of course, you do have the peasant households, and there's a very significant part. That's a very unique social unit, if you want to put it that way, um, if you want to understand production and consumption. But if you want to understand the reproduction of societies over the long term, you need to understand all the common elements of that, of that world. So it's, it's also important in, in that regard. Like the, 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 the relevance of the peasant household has not been recognized, and also that peasant households enjoyed rights over commons, but how that fits not just into, you know, the, the, the daily economy, but on the reproduction of over the long term of these local societies. And then it's, it's, it's very important to understand all, this common, all, all these elements that they share and how they deal with them. Because obviously these resources, I guess, are, are essential to the workings of these societies. I mean, you can't manage without water, right? And you have to actually, or, or, or all these other things, you have to have some organisation. And... Is it? I mean, we'll come to this later, Avara, but briefly now, these commons, they're managed by the communities and not by, this isn't managed top down. Then. This isn't managed by kings telling people what they're allowed to have and so on. This is much more organic. Well, that's, that's the second level at which it's interesting. And that's because uh, in the ninth, 10th century, we start to see how kings, but also other elites, aristocratic elites, seem to take over the commons. So the question there is, on the one hand, Who's got the capacity to grant access to the commons, and what's what that confers to those actors? That's something that um, 
as I said before, kings, monasteries, and lay aristocrats began to accumulate. So they couldn't themselves have position communities in terms of, well, n- n- not the community now, but we as, uh, are, uh, as aristocrats are the ones that are granted access to the commons. To a certain extent, they may have the capacity to limit the conditions or the uses that peasants can make of the commons, establish some norms. It doesn't mean that, well, they, that, that those norms are, are always observed. Mm. Um, but to a certain extent, they may have the capacity to, to impose some limitations. This sometimes is expressed in their um, ability to, well, impose sort of rent or tribute associated to the use of those of those commons. But in terms of the, the regulation of the use of, of commons, uh, that's probably something that keeps occurring at a very local level. So this is not quite the same as people may be familiar um, listen to this with the enclosures which go on in the early modern period, which is, but that's, that's different, isn't it? Because in those circumstances, landlords or rulers are kind of taking over and using it for themselves, these common resources. Whereas in, in, in this earlier period, it's more a question of regulate of kings and monasteries regulating these these commons. Yeah, but it's, it's, you see some instances in which actually the lords are trying to benefit mm. directly from appropriation of commons, and they try to exclude other people from access, at least from some uses. Uh, but it's perhaps not, not not as important as the fact that first of all they controlling the commons and able to, to position themselves in, or, or to to invest themselves with an authority of the community. So it's in terms of the polit- how the political relationship um, between this, these lords and, and the community, that's something that's very relevant. And then perhaps more in terms of the rents that, that they can derive from their, their control of the commons, rather than on, on the direct use. But you do see some instances in which yeah. they're very interested in getting their, well, or, or keeping the lands for certain use, getting their cattle grazing lands. So. Okay, but there's the, the, so there's an economic angle, but there's also, I guess, you're, 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 you're suggesting here, Alvaro, it's a very important political angle here as to this is about. Yeah, that's, 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 that's the thing. At that level, at the level of the interplay between lords and communities, the political and, um, dimension of it is very good. This leads me on to the next question I was going to ask, Alvaro. Um, your work on the Commons fits into your wider expertise in, in, well, in the charters. So these are the legal records which survive in great numbers from northwestern Iberia. Uh, in your article, you say there are over 8,000 of these documents. Um, and in particular, how these documents record disputes, disputes over land, disputes, I guess, over access to, to common rights, but not just over that. What can we use these, these disputes, Alvaro, in, in these charters to tell us about, about this period? Uh, it's a big question, I know. Well, it's, it, it's again one, one question that's many different answers, because um, you can use those charters for many things. First, perhaps charter protection itself, judicial records or dispute records better, um, can be of many different types. And there's that, that can tell us about how they were drafted, by whom, in which circumstances. So that'd be a very, very important thing you can dig in and you can dig in through these chapters, um, chapters and through that understand charter protection in, in a more sense. And there's also the, the information they provide about the social groups that, that appear in these disputes. Now, most of the charters that we have in Northwestern Iberia for this period are basically records of land transactions. We could go into further detail, but in general terms, it's basically records of land transactions of different types. So in those kind of records, you normally see a family or, or individuals exchanging land or donating land uh, with each other or with monasteries or with lay aristocrats in the context of disputes and you start to see other kind of actors doing different things so for example it's a con- can see local communities acting you can see collective action in different ways reflected in in this kind of charters it illuminates um, a social realm that's always obscured by the rest of them of it. it does not it, it does not appear in in other of, of records as i say in terms of the social groups in terms of their relationships and it of course tells us much about the workings of justice itself 
Um, so there's a lot that we can learn about well, how how a dispute would be settled in in Northwest Liberia at the time. Uh, there's a great book by Wendy Davis on, on justice in in the, the northern Liberia. She focuses mainly in, on the 10th century. So there's a lot that we can learn about that about. Um, Judicial process about the roles, like formalized role judicial in terms of who's presiding over the, the judicial assembly conductors at present. It's also interesting in terms of what it can tell us about it called these political discourses. But let's say that in most of the well, in, in a significant proportion of the dispute records that we have, the object of dispute is land. So there's a lot of arguing about who's got the right to land. And on what basis? Um, and as I said, that that's that's a very significant part of early medieval politics um, at a local level, but also in terms of the relationship between local actors and super local actors. So tracing the arguments that different parties wield of their position and to legitimize their claims of the land also very interesting because it gives us clues about how these people are conceptual, the rights to land, how they're confronting alternative claims. So in terms of the political, at the level of political discourse, also, it's also very interesting. And then there's, of course, the question of, as I, as I was saying, land itself. Let's say that the dispute records illuminate many different types of disputes. It's just that I'm, I'm focusing more on, on land disputes, mm-hmm. on other kind of criminal disputes, or, or however mm-hmm. you want to call it. Um, so there's also the question of land itself. Ten, mainly the 10th, but also to a certain extent, the 11th century is there is a very significant change in the, um, the configuration of regimes at local level uh, in terms of access to land is distributed at a local level. So one side of that process traced through other types of charters, transactions, um, donations. It's mainly the, it's mainly the accumulation of, of land in the sort of a few actors, a few actors, monasteries, lay aristocrats, that those kind of charters eliminate. Another side of, of that process is traced through the analysis of land disputes, not only in terms of of well actual conflicts of appropriation of land but also in terms it actually entailed to claim over a given land uh, so this this uh, about the commons right ways the commons interesting but it enables us to see the different levels that this could be disputed not in terms of use or, or property if you want to call it that way but in terms of access and uh, different levels of use in terms of the capacity to grant or, or to donate or to, to alienate those mm. those lands um that, that'd be one level. And also in terms of how the relationships between elites themselves and, and, and the king are established. So we see disputes at a very local level between local actors. We see disputes between local actors and lay and ecclesiastical lords. We also see disputes between different aristocratic or elite actors, both lay and, and ecclesiastic. Uh, so in terms of how well, so competition for access to, to land or control over land or terrorists. That's also that you can also use through these through this dispute routes. And that's interesting because it, it, it gives you an idea of well, how these actors are, are building their own basis of power. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's worth emphasizing, Alvaro. I mean, land is the basis, I guess, for all these societies. I mean, they, they are founded, say the same is true, everywhere in Europe in this period um, and long before and after, land is the main resource. And of course, one of the key points you're making here is that there are different kind. People have their overlapping rights or claims. I think you talk about claims, which is better than rights. People are making different groups of people are making claims of different kinds of, over land. And this is a period in northwest Liberia, if I understand it, Alvaro. There aren't very many narratives, are there? So there's, but there's lots of charters. There's not many kind of historical chronicles or things like that. There are some, but not so many. But there are a great deal of of these documents, which then show us in action the interlocking parts of this society. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, but that's that's interesting about the kind of record that we have that illuminates all social scales. So from 
from the, the very local societies, the very tools, um, to the deeds of kings and the monasteries and so on. So it would, we, you can say a, a great deal about all this, all this interlocking scales about how they worked, how they related to us. So it, it, in, in that sense, it's, it's a very interest um, for analyzing elements Ultimately, the people doing the work on the land are, are the peasants, the farmers. Um, but you've mentioned already a couple of times now of our elites. We do get elites in these societies, monasteries, but also kings. And I know you're interested in state formation. Is this a process which you can, A, see in these charters? And B, is this happening in, in this period, in the 10th, 11th century? Well, that's, it's a difficult question because, I guess, from a start, not everyone would agree on this in the concept of the state. Um, but I do find it useful. Uh, we can go into a little about why, but just to answer your question, what, I, what I'm interested in is not so much on the kind of things that people normally focus on when they think of states. I'm not interested in bureaucracy. I'm not so much in royal power. I'm rather interested in the conditions that enable the reproduction of that kind of power. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of interested, if you think it from the perspective of the kings, I'm not interested in what the kings are doing, the conditions that enable them to act in the way they do or limit them to act in a different in a different way. So the way that I've approached this is trying to understand what we could call the infrastructure. And, and for that, I'm interested on in how that reflects on the ground. So trying to trace the 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 development of that infrastructure from a very local level to the level of well, the, the scale at which things do, do act. Um, so that's something that you can trace through the charts, which would enable you to see, on the one hand, how local societies are organized, power relations at a very local level, how relationships are start actors acting at a super local level, uh, aristocratic groups, uh, and at the same time, the relationships established with aristocratic groups between, well, among the aristocratic um, circles themselves, but also with the kings um that that would be kind of the the arrival point and if you approach it from this perspective i think interesting because um from a merely political view what you see through the 10th uh, and 11th century is a period in which you can see that kings become stronger uh, and they're very strong in the 19th century and it's a period of huge political crisis towards the late 10th century early 11th century then um, there's again a strong king in the mid of, uh, of the 11th century. Um, and these these kings, just to interrupt briefly, are these are kings of what, the kings of Leon, kings of Asturias, kings of um, Navarre. Yeah, is that right? Or? King kings of Asturias, Leon, until we'd say the Asturianist kings and 1037. That's when Bermudo the Third was the last Asturian king, well, male descendants. Um, but he dies, and then Fernandez, which is a Navarran king, is um, Sancho Third. Sancho el Mayor, um, the Navarra comes king of Auckland. In, in there are lots of kingdoms, basically. There are lots of kingdoms in this. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, but, but the thing is that, the, the like, thing is that in spite of all this political crisis and, and even the change in, 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 in 1038, basically the, the, king, the kingdom holds it. Like, there's no collapse. It's, there's no significant crisis in the structure of the kingdom. But that's something you can only reconstruct if you if you notice and see how these different relationships are established. So, it's kind of it's it's kind of a shift of, of paradigms. So the late 10th century, early 11th century was was understood feudal, but the mutual feudal mm-hmm. model, like um, the, 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 those kind of approaches. If you look at it from the other perspective, what's interesting is that not with some political crisis, um, the whole thing holds together. And actually, competition is not for, or you wouldn't see people trying to do away with the monarchy and try to establish themselves uh, their own territories, uh, working on their own. There's been lots of work, hasn't there? I mean, often, so northwestern Spain, northwestern Iberia, sorry, has often been seen as one of the places where political power uh, retreats the furthest uh, in the kind of wake of the transformation of the Roman Empire. So you get what, what Chris Wickham is called the peasant mode of production. So on. it mm-hmm. is this kind of this, you just see, you see these fairly autonomous um, um, societies. So I guess you're studying it all through these charts. You can start to see 
how power is beginning to be centralised again, but not, it's not a question of particularly individual kings then. It's much more structural than that, as in the, the infrastructure of royal power is the kings come and go, but the, 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 the slowly consolidating infrastructural power of kingship or, or, or of these or, or of the agents of kings, that is, that is something which you can just see changing and growing. Yeah, that's it. Kings and, and all the, the actors around them, not, not, not only the delegates, but all the actors that have a stake in, in the council of the monarchy, so very significant or very important monasteries, uh, aristocratic groups. That, that it's a long monarchy. way from the mutation feudal, the, the feudal revolution argument, which sees a fragmentation of power. I mean, in some ways, Alvaro, uh, this is the opposite, right? Far from a fragmentation, we're getting, we're getting a, yeah. a coalescence. People before would have argued that there was fragmentation, that there was a uh, public power and the establishment of, of a feudal world, uh, private relationships. But um, it's, uh, I, I come to a different perspective. If you look at it from the infrastructure of, of kingship and what that allows other people, then you see a, a much more stable world. Uh, and, and of course, some words may change, or, but the basics remain. And that's what allows then kings and the elect to act in the way they do. Um, otherwise, you wouldn't understand how they're able to establish uh, the administration uh, of the kind of of governance that, that they're able, able to implement. Yeah, so this is the kind of preconditions, preconditions we're seeing. And I guess uh, the other thing I'd say, um, obviously there's been lots of people have worked on, on Catalonia uh, to look at the feudal revolution idea. I mean, quite famously, uh, a couple of historians, Pierre Bonassi, um, Thomas Biss and so on. But this is, this is a different world, right? Northwestern Liberia, it's, a, it's a, a different body of material, anyway, different charters. I mean, this does lead me then on to my question, because thinking of the changing historiography, uh, Alvaro, of, of Northwestern Liberia and how, how historians have approached it. Um, and um, I wonder what you'd say about how, how that has, how, how historical approaches to the early medieval Northwestern Iberian Peninsula, so basically North, 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 Northwestern Spain, have changed. Um, lots of listeners may think of 11th century Northern Christian Spain um, as opposed to Al-Andalus, but Northern Christian Spain in terms of the Reconquista. So that's the same in which um, the, the growth of the Christian sites as they spread um, southwards. Your work is a long way from this. And I'm, I'm guessing there's, this reflects wider changes, in, in, especially in Spanish language historiography. Mm, yeah, effectively, I have to think about, about how I would characterize the period Reconquista come to my mind. So I guess we're a long way from, from that. And from, from the other part of, of the, because the Conquista always goes associated with Población, so the population of those lands that were asserted uh, as a result of the Muslim con- conquest of um, Iberia and the retreat of the Christians to the north and all that. Uh, we no longer think in, in those terms, and that's, that's well, partly, partly due to one of the most significant changes in the historiography ever since the 1980s, but more significantly in the 90s and early 2000s, which is the, the contribution of archaeology to um, historiographical narratives. Uh, first of all, to establish that, well, those lands were not settled at all. And then to settling into the, well, the, the intricacies of, of the local societies, of the different ways in which those local societies have become part of, of the um, expanding uh, polities in the north of, of the Iberian Peninsula. So I'd say that, that that's probably the most, <clears throat> what I'd say that's probably one of the most significant changes over the, the last years. That's changed uh, the perspective in which people approach the historical processes that you can trace from the from the in the charters from from charters and the narrative sources from the from the banks. again from from a more top down perspective in which what was more relevant was the study of monastic domains, uh, aristocratic groups, and how they built their power. Um, there's a more nuanced understanding complex relationships, first at the local level, but also between local local actors. Um, it's also partly to a change in terms of our historiographical horizons. Um, I think which are more aware of what's going on in other places. We're not so much simply French historiographies as in other places, uh, which was dominant until the 1990s. We've been more like 
the, the influence of the um, Anglo-Saxon historiography has been more felt in the last in the last years. It's also enabled us to change everything in terms of how we're seeing. So, a kind of internationalisation of, of perspective has changed how people think about Northwestern Spain in this case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's 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 it's it, it's also been a significant contribution. We're not so much looking at at, at France anymore. Many other places. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it strikes me as someone you know, looking from outside. It's it's a very fast moving field, actually, and there's and it, it's transforming quite. Yeah, the kind of questions historians are asking now about northwestern Iberia seem really quite different from those they're asking, say, twenty years ago. Um, which is mm. true, obviously, in lots of fields of history, but it seems particularly true, especially true of of the of the field you're working in, Alvaro. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's you know, and I think it's a it's, it's a two way. Process because in the same way that people in Spain had to look for their for their references and and, and things that that help them formulate their questions, doing some significant work on the Iberian Peninsula, um, historians looking at it from the outside. I was mentioning Wendy Davis' books on what was also Bob Portas, uh, Grand Barrett, Johnson, Jarrett, and many others for doing great work on this period, and that's also helping to, to formulate how we approach these these centuries. This, I mean, my talking of changing historiography, Alvaro, my final question for you is, um, what are you working on at the moment? So I'm, I'm guessing it's about charters. I'm guessing it's about land uh, and, and processes of land, uh, processing land disputes. But tell me more. Yeah, well, it's, it, I'm, I'm trying to finish my, I'm supposed to be writing a book about land disputes. Um, what I was saying before about how people formulate their claims, how to manage access to land. That's something that interests me now. I'm, and I'm working on a book about that. And in the meantime, I'm trying to close up the development over the last years. So doing some work, we've managed to establish this, network of scholars working on northwestern Iberia and for the last years we've been focusing on, on inventories um, so one very specific record that we have for this. so um, together with Andrea Marquez I'm working on an edited collection of papers on, on inventories from northwestern uh, well northern Iberia really because we have people as well and uh, you were mentioning my interest on the state but also just miss I'm close to com- completing the the, ed- the edition of a, of a book of, uh, of another collection of essays on the state and the early Middle Ages, trying to approach um, the state from from a more theoretical perspective, but, and at the same time contrast that with both the archaeological and, and, and written sources can actually tell us about qualities. Um, so hopefully that'll be out this year. So that's, those those are kind of the main things. Well, that sounds brilliant. Um, thank you very much for, for for this conversation. Thank you very much for sharing how you've been getting on, and um, thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. Well, thank you very much for the invitation and congratulations on the on this. It's it's most interesting. Thanks, Harry. <laughs>